<sighs> oh man, what's the matter, Hunter? Why so sleepy? Oh man, I just I keep drinking this old coffee, but it's just not waking me up like it used to, you know. You know, you can't keep drinking that old coffee, you silly goose. You know what you need? You need Death Wish coffee. Death Wish coffee has so much caffeine it can kill a horse. <laughs> that that's enough. That could that could absolutely wake me up. Wow. Thank you. Where can I get some? Listen, Hunter, you can get some right now at carlpooling.com slash coffee. And let me just say, we love Death Wish Coffee. It's one of the products that I can genuinely say I liked before they were a sponsor. And that is a huge deal. So you know I'm not fronting when I tell you that this is some great coffee. Also, they're rebellious by nature. It's their tagline. And it's true because Death Wish has the beans to sponsor a show like Carl Pooling. Oh, that's great, but I'm pretty tired. Do you think you could just send me the URL so I could just paste it into my browser and I'll get this over I'll put it in the show notes. But again, it's, <laughs> it's carlpooling.com slash coffee. And I've got even better news for you, Hunter. This will wake you up. Using our discount code DWCAF10, that's D-W-C-A-F-F-10, our listeners can get 10% off their total order, so you really have nothing to lose. Wake up, be a rebel, go to carlpooling.com slash coffee right now, and score yourself some Death Wish coffee at a great price. Death Wish, it might kill a horse. <laughs> With discounts like these you can't afford to sleep through them okay back to the show welcome welcome one and all welcome once again to the the greatest and last show on earth um it's it's been a long a long haul out here in the podcast wasteland apocalypse, but Carl Pulling is still broadcasting on one radio station, the only one, the internet. Uh, also, this week I felt even more post-apocalyptic than normal Hunter because yeah, uh, we drove we got to drive some tanks this week. That's right, yeah, a real life tank. That's right, and uh, I'll just this is a shameless plug because we're a shameless show. And that is that we have taken an image of that and <laughs> <laughs> made a new T-shirt that's live on our merch store right now. It's the Carl Pulling Frontlines T-shirt with Hunter and I in a tank. Um, if you already liked having my face on your body as you go about your day, you're going to like it even better when you have my face emerging from a tank on your body. It's a great look. And Hunter's also there, yeah. which isn't really a selling point, but hopefully you'll, see ba- you'll look past it. <laughs> it uh, hurts so much. <laughs> Well, we have a great show today, and we're, we're, we're on the clock, so we're not going to waste any time. We're going to jump right in. We are joined by a very special guest today. He is a contributor to The Daily Wire. He is an award-winning film critic, and he is the host of the Hollywood in Toto podcast, where he discusses film and free speech and their intersection and a ton of interesting things. Christian Toto, thank you for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. Happy to be here. Excellent. Well, we I've got a lot of questions for you because this is probably like but just by happy coincidence 
the biggest week for the topics of film and free speech in hmm. modern memory. So uh, it's been it's been a real whirlwind. Uh, but just before we dive in to that interview, as is our want, we must take a moment, a pause, and lampoon the silly liberal fruitcakes that make June so weird. Hunter, please <laughs> present to us the roadkill. My pleasure. Uh, you guys have obviously heard of this guy, Ibram X. Kendi. Um, you probably have heard how he said uh, racism is required to fix racism today and a bunch of other strange things about discrimination. Well, he's got a new edit to his book. Uh, this is super exciting. And he has, erased, he has erased the infamous solution to past discrimination in his new book. Uh, just for clarity, if you remember, uh, this is kind of the old quote that he was going with. Uh, this is just beautiful. The only remedy to racist discrimination is anti-racist discrimination. The only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. And the only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. Well, you guys may not have understood the point he was trying to make and that. And so he's clarified that now in his updated book, here's how it reads. The only remedy to negative racist discrimination that produces inequity is positive anti-racist discrimination <laughs> that produces equity. <laughs> the only remedy to past negative racist discrimination that has produced inequity is present positive anti-racist discrimination that produces equity. The only remedy to present negative racist discrimination toward inequity is future positive anti-racist discrimination toward equity. And what does it have in its pockets is precious is kind of where that all ends. So it's a, it's a quite the word salad to say the exact same thing he said <laughs> yeah. before that didn't make any sense the first time. So it's that's beautiful. exactly what I was thinking. I was like, <laughs> how did you add more words and say less? That should be almost impossible. But again, you're a talentless hack. Hold on one second. We're actually getting a call right now from Michael Jordan. He's got a special message on this topic. Michael? Stop it. Get some help. Oh, well, that was... Look, like that. Why can't you be like that, Ibram X. Kendi? Short to the point. Everything that we need to know. Beautiful. Get some help. Beautiful. Um, Christian, any thoughts on Ibram X. Kendi to share with the class? He actually made his comments worse. I don't know how you could, but he did. He did it exponentially. So, I, in a way, I applaud him because you take a horrible, terrible, hated statement and you actually make it worse by tenfold. And I, I that takes some kind of skill set. So good for him. Yeah, you know what? That's a, that's a real. Uh, anti-racist positive racist glass half full <laughs> um for for even max candy there that's uh, look you've this is this is why we need guests on the show hunter because you and i are horrible people and somehow <laughs> somehow christian managed to say something nice about that which is <laughs> you know i think that vp harris might talk about that as well but she would add some venn diagrams <laughs> yeah a more exciting yeah, <laughs> just between Venn diagrams and buses and, and <laughs> how much Pete Buttigieg loves trains, I truly feel like we're in like the remedial kindergarten era of <laughs> of American politics. Um, all right. Well, Hunter, thanks for that. That was distasteful and, and nasty as normal. I appreciate you bringing us more roadkill. Got you covered. Um, and uh, remember, if you <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to be this guy now. Remember that if you are picking up roadkill on the side of the road and you don't want to get any on you, the uh, the Carl Pooling logo windbreaker is made of most neoprene <laughs> and wicks away the smegma from different types of roadkill. <laughs> All right, Hunter, we have to talk for a minute about private Internet access. Now, PIA is my favorite VPN. Have you ever used one before? Oh, yeah, they're great. Excellent. Jamie? 
My parents met on a VPN. Well, I'm not at all convinced that that's relevant, but let me tell you this. If you're online in the 21st century, you need a VPN. Why? As the amount of threats that exists on the internet increases and the amount of our data that's being stored online increases simultaneously, it's imperative that we do something to protect ourselves, protect our data as we surf the web. Now, VPN stands for Virtual Private Network. And what it does is it encrypts your data as it's going between your device, your machine, and the greater internet preventing it from being intercepted by malicious actors and hackers and identity thieves, etc. So a VPN is non-negotiable in today's digital day and age. Now, PIA is my favorite because it's the world's most transparent VPN provider. They have over 30 million downloads and they never store user data. They have a strict no logs policy, which has actually been proven out multiple times in courts and by a third party audit from Deloitte. So they truly don't store your data. That's right, Chris. And what private internet access does is it hides your IP address and encrypts your internet connection. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that internet service providers and government sensors can't get at your data. If you're saying something that you don't want them to look at, even if it's just your business, there's no reason for those nefarious actors to have any view into your data or what you're doing on the internet. That's your data. Protect it. That's right. And private internet access also comes with loads of entertainment benefits. The VPN is compatible with all of your major streaming platforms. So you shouldn't experience any issues running Netflix or Hulu or whatever streaming entertainment device you want to use. Plus, it's one of the few VPNs that supports P2P, that's peer-to-peer -peer file sharing. So this is a huge benefit for power users. Not only do you get the benefit of using any streaming service, you can also use it with any operating system. We're talking Windows, Mac OS, Android, Linux, iOS. Use different operating systems, not a problem. Have an Android phone and want to use it on your Mac? Not a problem. And what's even better than that, you can have an unlimited amount of devices use it at the same time. That's right. And Carl Pulling has the best deal for you today on PIA, on getting a VPN, securing your data. For just $2.03 a month, you can start protecting yourself online and your family online. That's 83% off the sticker price for private internet access. So act now. You get that great price plus four months free and you really have nothing to lose because private internet access offers a free 30-day money-back guarantee as well as 24-7 support so you are definitely going to either be pleased with the product or not be out a single dime but i know that you're going to love it you're going to want to keep it private internet access has a great vpn Carl Pooling has a great deal for you. Support them. Support the show. Go to carlpooling.com slash PIA right now to take advantage of this great deal. Again, that's carlpooling.com slash PIA. Snag a VPN. Protect yourself online. Support them. Support the show. And we will really appreciate it. All right. Let's get back to the episode. Christian. Uh, I've got a bunch of questions um, from a couple of different angles. And I know Hunter has recently just read your book, and I know he's got some questions about that. But I want to start with just the the giant elephant, male elephant wearing a dress in the room. What is a woman, Twitter, Elon Musk, what is your takeaway having about a week to digest some of this? How would you describe the past week? 
you could say it's a cluster you know what for starters there you, go. you could also say it's really indicative of the times we live in the the perils the the heroic finale the fact that there's so many people who are really actively working against free speech in our culture and it's not just a couple of yahoos on the web it's major media organizations it's you know where's the aclu during all these kerfuffles right. i mean gosh the, when i grew up they were the group to fight back and to fight for free speech and they are almost non-existent as a reporter i've actually reached out to them on a couple of free speech stories i think once or twice and they just don't respond they don't care they don't want to be they don't want to be in this conversation which is just shocking but yeah it's it's a big story it certainly started poorly because it looked like the twitter was going to throttle the movie uh you know and it as much as possible, make sure that no one could see it. And then Elon Musk did step in and he rallied to the rescue. But it also shows that there's such a rot within Twitter that even when you take over and you're a gazillionaire, that there are still people working against you and working against your mission. And they have no qualms about that. I understand two people either were fired or quit in the last couple of days, which is a good sign, obviously. But, you know, it took everything Elon had to make it happen. And he almost didn't get it done. So that's what we're up against. The, the, the fight for free speech is that fraught with, with danger, with that fraught with, with loss. And, you know, once you let it go, though, people will check it out. And I, I thought it was 170 million views on Twitter for the film itself. Mm -hmm. and, you know, you don't know if that's the whole thing, half the movie, a scene or two. Those things can be kind of nebulous. But you know, I think it's the Streisand effect in effect where if you try to hold something back, people are more and more curious about it. But the bigger question is, now, we need more people fighting for free speech. I don't care if they're on the left or the right or the middle. We need every last one because the odds against us winning are getting more and more insurmountable every day, and it scares me. Yeah, and that that's one of the things that was so so peculiar to me. I'll just say before I jump into my point that I know why the ACLU isn't returning your calls. They're busy editing uh, Ibram X. Kennedy's books. <laughs> but the, the, uh, but when, when Elon bought Twitter... It seemed like we were finally at a at a watershed moment where perhaps there was going to be one, not you know, not a rumble, not a parlor, but a major, you know, one of the enfranchised social media companies that was going to start supporting free speech. And when I read the the tweet thread from Jeremy Boring, that not only had they been in discussions with Twitter about releasing the film, but that they had signed a, a deal effectively for uh, special reach and a special release page, and then that was all being wiped away. And we spent, you know, 12 hours, give or take, on Thursday without hearing from Elon Musk. I was like, Man, this was uh, this was what I thought this was a once in a lifetime opportunity, and I guess it was all a sham. I mean, thank thank God things switched up, and uh, it, I can't remember the lady's name, but it was the head of it was the head of their their trust and safety team, I think, that resigned like on Thursday in the milieu of everything that was happening. But I was I was so disheartened by what happened, and then even when he replied, his reply was like, "Well, we're still not going to honor the deal. We're still not going to." to completely unthrottle the film. Um, and it really wasn't until he retweeted it that I was like, okay, uh, there's, there are things moving against this machine, but you're absolutely right. The, this is the, the going rate for so long in the social media landscape has been a complete shutdown of certain points of view. And, you know, as a conservative, 
you could you could rightly point out that I'm upset that the side that I I align with is being shut down. But even more fundamentally, if you don't allow if you don't allow conversation to flourish in a free society, you actually kill pro- progress as well as conservatism because we can't move forward in a positive direction without testing out our ideas in the free market. And so it, it's a it was a dark a dark day on Thursday to say the least. I thought we were sliding back into, you know, the 2021-22 status quo. You know, if so. this was a movie about the joys of drag queen bingo and it was throttled <laughs> and censored and kicked off, I'd be just as angry because I don't want art to be throttled and censored and kicked off. And that's where, you know, it's if let's just take that as an example. If that were the case and it was a movie that was appraising drag queens for just for uh, argument's sake, every entertainer in the world would be using their Twitter accounts to to smash that decision. Every major like Variety, Hollywood Reporter, all these newspapers, every media outlet would go wall to wall covered about how wrong that is. And you know what? It'd be right. But when it was when there was something that they didn't want to support, they all went silent. And their silence is deafening. It happens again and again. I think it's one of the real tells of the modern age is that people, if they don't like the point of view you're sharing, they go dark, even though it's free speech, even though it's essential, even though it's art. And the fact that, you know, I've been covering Hollywood for 20 plus years and I, I got into this gig because I love movies. That's, that's my main, my main, you know, compass point. I just love movies. That's how I got here. And my mission has changed over the years for sure. But to see my industry, and I'll call that loosely, this is what I cover, just, just be so so sheep-like on this issue. It's devastating to me. And I, I try to think about it because I want to be, I want to be positive. I want to be the happy warrior, but gosh, the fact that all these people just <laughs> yeah. won't stand up for anything unless it directly aligns with their worldview is just really frightening. It's just amazing what's happening. That's where we are. And it, it's important to know where we are and it's important to, to cheer on the minor victories we get. And maybe this one isn't minor, maybe it's major, but it's, <laughs> it could very easily have gone the other way. Uh, absolutely. Um, Jamie, did you get that name for me? Ella Irwin. Ella Irwin. Mm, it, it sounds it, it sounds bad. Yeah. You know, just it doesn't roll off the tongue. Um, okay, thank you. So so I I am very cu- curious. You say you, you know, you had a love of movies. That's how you got into this into this industry, into this uh, line of work. And I, I, when I think back to Hollywood maybe in its golden era it was it was transgressive in such a in my opinion generally positive way their art was challenging the status quo as it typically does there was scandal on the big screen right even though by today's standards everything they were doing was quite wholesome and it asked important you know films were asking important questions and now you know you look at the the winners or the nominees for the Oscars and stuff, and films are asking the important questions like, can I fall in love with a fish? But, <laughs> but I, I want to know a little bit about how you, how you fell in love with the film industry in general. What brought you to the point of being a film critic? Because w- uh, on this show, Hunter and I, we take, we take an episode every two months maybe and we'll take a film and dissect it for themes but i feel totally out of my depth actually <laughs> analyzing a film so i'd love to know a little bit about your 
story, how you got to where you are, and then a little bit about the the ins and outs of being a film critic in general. Um, sure. I find it fascinating. I know nothing about it. Well, it started with Abbott and Costello. That was my first cinematic love. My dad would make me watch the Abbott and Costello movies. They were on every Sunday when I grew up in New York. And then I just took it from there. My dad loved movies. I just followed suit. My dad's a Yankee fan. I'm a Yankee fan for life. You know, sometimes you just emulate your family, emulate your parents in certain ways. And it just stuck for me. And then as a teenager, I, my, my romantic life wasn't exactly hopping. So I was going movie after movie with my buddies who similarly were struggling with the ladies. And it just set in stone from there. And then I went to art school. I wanted to be an artist. And by the end of it, I thought, I can't do this. I'm not good enough. So I segued into journalism. But all the time I'm thinking, wouldn't would it be great to be a film critic? So that was the path I was on. And to make a long story shortish, I started working in D.C. at the Washington Times. And that was roughly around the 9-11 attacks. And it was really apolitical. But when that attack happened and I saw one side say, we should do something. The other side was saying, why do they hate us? What did we do wrong? I, I picked I picked a side. I was conservative by default by then. And then as the years went on, I thought I became a critic, but I was I noticed that there was a divide that the vast majority. My peers were liberal and, and often hard left. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's fine. There was an opening for people who were on the right and it, it, it matched my heart and my ideology. So I leaned into it. So that's that's kind of the shortest version. I, again, I got into it because I wanted to review movies. That was the, the main mission uh, back then. And it's still the core of what I do. But of course, I've branched out and I couldn't expect, you know, in 20 years, I'd be talking about free speech and how people can't say what they want to say. Who, who, who could have predicted that? But that's where we are. And that's, that's what I care about the most right now. And I, I cross ideological lines early and often. I praise liberals like John Cleese and Bill Maher and mm -hmm. Rob Schneider, although he's sort of drifting to the right. You know, because if you do speak out, you do stand up for speech and free expression, I want you on my side. And I think everyone needs all their support. So that's where I am today. I'm a conservative. I'm more maybe a libertarian at heart. But boy, free speech is my number one issue, number two and number three as well. <laughs> Good. Good. Hunter, are you jumping in there with a question? Yeah. You know, I it's one of those things, uh, Christian, while I was reading through your book here just a little while ago, like Kristen mentioned, um, you know, it, it's... I saw this person who was in love with movies, who was, you know, I, I can't remember which uh, movie rental store you worked at, but, you know, where you're kind of having this whole uh, career through this and kind of getting involved. And then it seems like every industry has just been infused with politics, um, whether it's the big businesses that are putting pride logos on, you know, their Twitter icons or are just doing days and days of internal celebration events for whatever uh, woke ideology is king at the moment. Um, you know, and it's just so upsetting to me because I think that's degraded uh, just the quality in a bunch of different areas. And I wonder, there's, there's a part of me that kind of thinks about the alternate universe, if you will, of Christian Toto that just gets to love movies and do that. And it seemed, and kind of you going through your story there, you kind of went away that... I kind of felt is that this kind of happened to you. This isn't necessarily a choice. And I feel like that's how politics is happening for a lot of people is it's something happened to them. Is that, is that kind of reflecting on your experience as well? Or have you seen something different there or? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's more or less right, but I think it's not happening to me. It's happening to all of us. And I think right, that we exactly. all we really crave an escape from that, that nonstop messaging that's across the board. Uh, and a couple of quick thoughts on that. One is, one of the reasons why Top Gun Maverick was so successful, and I 
mm-hmm. line about the movie is that it was so aggressively apolitical. It was political. It was just sheer entertainment, sheer joy, nostalgia. You know, everything you want in a movie without getting involved in the in the culture wars. They were, you know, there were black pilots and female pilots, and nobody mentioned it. It just was. They were based on merit, and it was part of the story. And I think people really do have a hunger for that. And I think a lot of the movies that have done really well in recent years, like the Super Mario Brothers movie and the Spider-Man No Way Home, they've been pretty apolitical. There's there's just a joy to them. I think that that does matter for sure. And yeah, I, I, I do think that The Woke has really... Listen, there's some great TV shows and great movies still, but I think it's it has hurt production. It has hurt the creative process. Because often you'll be watching a movie and all of a sudden it stops cold to deliver a lecture or, <laughs> you know, certain characters can't behave in certain fashions because it wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't be woke to have them do that. Mm. So it becomes predictable, it becomes stayed. And, you know, I think this is most prevalent in comedy. My gosh, you know, watching the late night shows, telling the same jokes and looking for the clapter and Saturday Night Live, which I just adored as a kid and watched it over the decades. It, it's unwatchable now. I mean, they've spent two years avoiding the fact that Joe Biden is the president. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's almost immoral from a comedic point of view. And to have Biden and Kamala Harris, who are just the ripest satirical targets since President Trump, who obviously is you know, a, a, a comical figure. Yeah, no one, no one denies that. But they just beat the, the Trump horse to death. And it's a, a litany of the same jokes. And they won't touch the targets that are on the left. It's... It's a dereliction of duty. So, yeah. And, mm-hmm. and now what do we do? So we go on YouTube and, um, oh, gosh, Kyle Dunnigan does an amazing Biden. He's pretty uh, bipartisan. It's, he mocked mm-hmm. Elon Musk and Ben Shapiro. You know, we, we hunger for that. So when we see it online or on Twitter uh, or on a YouTube or on a, on a podcast. We, we, we celebrate it and it often gets very successful. So we're starved for, for really rebellious humor. I think mm-hmm. that the woke mindset has really hurt creativity and I, I don't know why more artists aren't speaking out about it. I, I yeah, I, I am in full agreement with you there, and I love that you mentioned John Cleese. Um, there, it feels to me like the comedians that are holding the line right now are the British comedians that were doing drag before drag was a lifestyle, <laughs> and it was just hilarious. But uh, I, rem- I, the things that John Cleese has been saying online and the lectures and, and tours he's been denying because he refuses to be censored. In instance, he was just in the papers last week because they're putting together a Broadway of the life of Brian, and he refuses to remove the man having the right to have babies scene from the musical, which is just is brilliant, right? Um, it's great. And Stephen Fry crossing lines to, to join, to join uh, Jordan Peterson yeah. in the Monk debate. Yeah. A couple years ago, it, I I I'm pining for some staunch British com- comedians to. I'm, I w- we need that spirit in American comedy because Dan Carlin died and now we have no one. Um, but <laughs> regardless, um, I, I and to your point about movies becoming predictable and boring, I don't watch a bunch of movies anymore, um, unfortunately. But I watched I watched the. Did I say Dan Carlin? I meant George Carlin. I'm a moron. Um, but uh, I I remember I watched a couple of weeks ago, a couple months ago, the Dungeons and Dragons movie. And in a fugue state, I started recommending the Dungeons and Dragons movie to my parents. I was like, 
that movie was middling at at best, but I loved it so much, and I realized this, that it was so entertaining to me because nobody had to sit there and say, "Well, you know, girls can use swords too." At any point during the film, you know, it's become so tired, and it it makes you want to turn it off. It makes you want to walk out. Um, okay, when I watch a movie, it goes something like this. Okay, I have in my lap about 7,000 calories <laughs> and then I put another 3,000 in the cup holder and then I fall asleep and expect them to entertain me. I'm assuming that's not how award-winning film critics watch movies. Can you tell me like the one or two things that you're that are different when you watch a movie as opposed to when the normal populace watches a movie? It's both similar and different. It's different because I know I've got to rationalize what um what the movie is and and, and I, I try to look at my lead of the, of the review as i'm watching it sometimes it'll jump out at me or you know i i i'm covering film from a writer center perspective so i'm looking for moments that are political not to bash the film but just to alert my readers that hey this is in there because i'm in a way doing a service for right of center readers because no one else is going to do it Having said all that, I will take notes sometimes as well, not always, but often. But I love it when a mid-movie and I just put my pad down and just watch it. Just to me, that's yeah. like, it got me, I'm engaged, and really the, the best way to be a critic is to get lost in it. And that's, that's my sweet spot. So when I'm watching a movie, yeah, I've got my, my, uh, <clears throat> my pad out, I've got my notepad, I'm writing little notes here and there. But at some point, especially in the best movies, I'll just stop. I'll just watch it and I'll let it wash over me because that's really what every person should do. Just, you know, let, get lost in the experience. And if I can't duplicate that, then maybe I'm not doing a good enough job. So that's, I start writing, but I, I want to get to that place ultimately, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's, that's really cool. You, that, that seems like the, the best way to, to get lost in it and then try and like write your way back out. Um, I love that. So to that end, as we've been talking about what is a woman, I love the film. I love the film because it's a story that you're not allowed to tell. Um, and it's a story that we need to tell. And so somebody that was bold enough to do that, you know, Justin Folk and, and uh, the folks at the Daily Wire who were able to tell that story, it, it was fantastic. But there were parts in it too where I, I am looking at, you know, it's a documentary, but the cinematography kind of amazed me at certain parts. So I was like, it's like when Jordan Peterson walks in and they kind of shoot him, like the sheriff walking <laughs> into town and, and uh, you know, he gets, sits down at the table and lays down the law. I was like, that was an exciting narrative beat. I'm kind of interested, not maybe on the content of it, um, but as far as filmmaking goes, uh, you know, the, the technical aspect of it, what did you think about what is a woman how did it hit? What did it do well? Do you have an opinion on that? Absolutely. First of all, I know Justin Folk a little bit. I've met him a couple of times. Wow. I just interviewed him for my podcast. And he's a really sweet, humble guy. He's really talented. And he makes movies that look great on a very small budget. He did No Safe Spaces, which is basically the warning to yeah. our culture that no one heeded. But that one looked amazing, too. So he's got a great eye as a filmmaker. He's able to make a movie look two to four times uh, maybe two to four million more than they actually are. So he's working with a small budget, but doesn't look that way. So yeah, he's a very powerful filmmaker. He he understands the message. He understands he's got to be entertaining as well. You know, I, I just reviewed a conservative documentary, 
and it's perfectly fine. I agreed with what it said. I had a lot of good talking heads, but it was very flat. There was nothing visually exciting about it. I thought, well, no, that's all well and good, but we're living in a very competitive age, and there's a, mm. we're, we're trying to get the eyeballs, you know, on, on everything you do. And I think that movie would work much better maybe a decade ago where we had lower expectations. But you really have to grab the, the audience now. You know, if you're if you if you're dull, if you're not really engaging, then I'm looking at my phone. I'm you know, we're all we're all you know finding different ways to distract ourselves. So I think that that's a you know, the word of the woman is interesting, it's thoughtful, it's compelling in what it says and what it doesn't say, it's revealing. And I think that I spoke to Justin about Matt's approach, Matt Walsh, the host, your, your guide through this story. Mm-hmm. And it was so stoic and so simple. And he wasn't yelling at his, his, his interview you know, guests. He was just asking basic questions, letting themselves get tied up into knots with their answers or non-answers. I mean, what, a, what an amazing approach. So, mm. uh, And by the way, Justin is working on a new project. I've spoken to him twice recently off air and on mic. He won't tell me what it is. But he's, he's hinting it's, it's, it's a big one. So, you know, this is the guy who knows what he's doing, is able to tell these really complicated stories. And he's not afraid to go there. And I would imagine you know, traditional Hollywood will not use him anymore because of what he does. But what a, what, a, what a loss, because I think many film studios are spending way too much money and losing cash because the budgets are so big. We need Justin Folk in there kind of saying, OK, here's how you cut corners. Here's how you make this money stretch as far as possible. You need those voices to save some, you know, save some cash and, and get your profit going. But uh, they won't listen, and it's to their detriment because he's a great filmmaker. Yeah, I, I felt the same way. I actually listened to your interview with with Justin. I guess it, it was on your podcast uh, last <clears throat> week or, or maybe a couple of days ago. Uh, but I, I thought his answers to a couple of those questions were so interesting, especially the the one piece of of takeaway that I really kept with me was when he was talking about him coaching Matt because one of my questions you know as as a novice watching the film is how much of this is just Matt being um Matt Walsh I love you don't take this too seriously (laughs) but whatever special kind of autism allows you to walk into that room and sit there and just just watch people burn in front of you and not move it you know not flinch um but I love what he said that he was coaching Matt on, hey, we've got a a hour and a half to tell this story. We don't have to put a button at the end of every at the end of every scene. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we can build this narrative as we go. And that hit me like a ton of bricks as I was like, that's exactly what the film does. It's you could you could end every interview with a mic drop here, but there's this build and this narrative and I I was thinking about how would you even go about doing that in a documentary style because you can't control yeah. what people are going to say you can't you can't guide the plot along you have to find the plot and i was like wow that that is it that takes a true talent from a directorial perspective to be able to tell that story over 90 minutes in a way that has rising action, falling action, resolution, right? In that time frame, I was like, uh, it really made me respect the work of the film even more once I had listened to to your interview there. And uh, yeah, he also said that that whatever he's working on next is going to be <laughs> big, like what is a woman? And I got, 
I got pretty giddy. <laughs> I I wanted to just email him immediately and be like, okay, but you can tell that's me right. no one listens to Carl Pulling. <laughs> um, just between the two of us, that's all. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. but isn't that interesting? I mean, wouldn't you like to get to know a filmmaker who tackles projects like that, controversial themes, uh, stories that make you talk? And yeah, I, I think it speaks to his maturity as a storyteller that he has the confidence to hold back, to hold back and to say, no, I'm building something. I'm building a, a there's a lot of puzzle pieces here, but I've got to, I got to snap into place the right way. And that's not easy. And that doesn't, you know, there are some very talented 20 somethings, but I would think you maybe need a little more experience in life to understand patience that requires. And also, like I said, you know, we do live in this, this instant uh, gratification age. And maybe the temptation is to do that killer book in every scene, but no, you don't need if you, if you put the story together, it, it all falls into place. And it really does. You know, I, I feel a little fearful when I write about it, when I talk about it sometimes, because I don't want to get canceled. I sure, try to yeah. do it in a very mature way. Um, I don't hate trans people. I don't wish anyone ill. Um, you know, but I, I do draw a line when it comes to children. I think this is a really significant issue. I think that's what this film is going for, you know. And, and so I have no hate in my heart. And I... As a solopreneur, I, I do worry about these issues as well. I'm not, you know, Ben Shapiro can take a lot of slings and arrows and come out stronger. I'm not Ben Shapiro, so, I, you know. <laughs> but I, but I also, should I avoid talking about this entirely? That, that feels wrong, too. Yeah. Well, you know, that's a question that we really struggle with here on carpooling, too, because, you know, we I work a nine-to-five um, until my boss listens to this. And then, <laughs> and, and then I'm going to be hat in hand walking around asking other folks for a job. But, but, you know, there is, there's a line to draw between, we need to, we need to ridicule and use humor as a, as a lever in this fight against ideologies that do not deserve to see the light of day. Not that we are against people saying what they believe, but if what you believe is that it's acceptable to carve out the bodies of little kids because they put on a dress one day. Well, I'm going to use every weapon in my arsenal to combat that idea. Right. But mm. I'm, it's not motivated out of a place of, of hatred or any ill will. In fact, you know, as we talk about the show on a lot, uh, as, as a, you know, a Christian conservative, I don't think I'm loving you. I don't think I'm actually being loving you towards you if i wave at you while you walk your way to hell and and i don't mean that just from a sinful place i mean you can have hell on earth you you i mean you even look at candace's show today where she showed some of the pictures and some of the complications that people are having with these surgeries you look at the lifetime suicide rate um there are a lot of people who are saying that they are loving these people by by confirming these ideologies that cause them mental and bodily harm and i i think that to actually love these people you have to tell them the truth i don't think you can i don't think you can love people without actually telling them the truth but it is difficult you know because because some people associate their that ideology so closely with their own identity uh, that it's hard to it's hard to dissect the two yeah, I mean, it's a good point. And also, I, I miss the nuance that we need to have in these conversations. Like you said, we're not hateful people. We're not wishing people ill. We are speaking our minds. We are concerned. And, and we should be heard. But what the media does is they label everyone a bigot if they don't, you know, fall in line. I mean, look at the look at what J.K. Rowling has gone through in the last mm. three 
Oh, and you know, listen, you could say, oh, you know, she's got all the money in the world. You know what? So does Stephen King and so does Scarlett Johansson. And they buckled in a minute when the when the mob came for them. So I think right. I give J.K. Rowling all the credit in the world. What we need is for more people to stand up. And honestly, the people like J.K. Rowling, they're, they can suffer the slings and arrows better than us because they've got a fallback because if their career goes away, they just lean back into their pile of money and they can, they can survive. <laughs> Uh, you know, and good for All them. They, they it. Yes, right. But you know, for the for the Joe and Jane down the street who could get you know lose their job if they don't use the right pronoun, that's a different situation. And they're cowed into silence, and they're cowed into being behaving a certain way, and that's just wrong. So you know, all these all these stories really are interconnected. And and the one thing I, I often try to say in any public forum I get is that woke is BS. Woke is about power and political strength. It is not about making the world a better place. It is not about care and compassion. It's not. And you can disprove it in a heartbeat because Morgan Wallen, the country singer, was almost almost lost his career because he used the N-word against someone who was not black and private. And all heck broke loose. And, and all the cancel culture types not only were on board with his punishment, they're still upset that he got, that he came back. Oh, he's canceled. He, well, guess what? Hunter Biden used the N-word numerous times, among other horrible actions. I know he's a drug addict. He used that word a lot in text. And the cancel culture crowd didn't give a darn. They didn't care. Because it's not about goodness and kindness. It's about power. Plain and simple. I could actually get on board with some of it. I could respect some of it. If it was really honest and sincere, it's not. It's about power. I think this is one of the things I like. I admire about you, Christian, is because you're so quick to call balls and strikes on both sides. And it's one of the things I think we don't see a lot today is where people are just willing to say, to give someone on the other side of the fence a pat on the back. But at the same time, you call out the, hypocr the hypocrisy so clearly. Uh, you take the time to show where like, hey, both of these things are happening on both sides, you know. Here's what happened on the right side and look at the blowback. Look at what happened on the left side and there was no blowback. And I think you just clearly do that so cleanly for people. And there's that genuine spirit that you actually care about people on both sides and about making sure that, hey, this person did something right. We need to support and love them. And I think I think that's a good message in heart that more conservatives can take to, to heart, that it doesn't necessarily hurt your message to say, hey, this person is bringing out my views and is saying the things I want to say. Who cares if they're across the aisle? They are with the right ideas. Um, but at the same time, making sure people see this double standard throughout society, um, that's nuance. That's difficult. That's hard to communicate to people. But I think it's, I think it's something we desperately need, uh, just given where we're at. Um, my secret to that in part is that my wife is a Bernie bro. <laughs> that's perfect and, 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 she keeps and you in check huh well the 2016 election didn't go well in our house and, uh, <laughs> Ooh, yeah. and so, so I have some of the scars from that still but yeah I mean that does put things in perspective and uh, you know as much as I want to get tribal I keep that in mind and yeah I know mm. you're right I want to be you know I'm an art major turned journalist and I, I want to be trustworthy and i think there are people listen there are voices on the right who just go with every right-leaning cause yeah. no question asked i'm not going to mention names it happens and i've probably done it myself honestly but you do have to be a little bit more honest a little bit more discerning if you want to gain the trust of people and that that does matter and i think if you just kind of you know if you wave the flag of your party non-stop I, I think it's hurting the country i mean i you know mm. you're seeing so many stories now where the biden administration is is just doing terrible things 
And the left doesn't care because it's their team. And I'm sure if the right were doing some of these, there's elements of the right that wouldn't care. And that is just as damaging as possible. And that's what scares me. It, it, it kills our it kills our our entire platform. You know, if we're if if we're positioning ourselves not maybe not as Republicans but as conservatives as being the side that's going to tell you the truth, even if it's the unpopular truth, and and that's our that's our main thrust because it is. I mean, when it comes to the climate science, we're the ones that are saying, "Hey, look at the data on nuclear. Like, why are we not <laughs> in nuclear with both feet?" You know. And when it comes to the trans ideology, we're telling the truth about gender when it comes to the economy we're telling the truth about redistribution and how it's been tried and how there's um a pretty tall uh cheerleading pyramid of dead bodies in russia somewhere that can prove it but but when we when we give in to these elements that say things like well uh you know that's not conservative but if trump does it i support it we we become the hypocrites ourselves so to act like like the right is immune that we have some kind of plot armor that defends us against the same kind of hypocrisy that we decry is simply not true and you see it a lot and and in my opinion and here comes chris the doomer a little bit but as we become more tribal as the political discourse gets more heated i see more and more hypocrisy and uh, in in a way if you go back to 2012 uh, things were pretty calm compared to how they were now, and there was less blood sport in politics, and there was less there was less cult of personality in politics, and now that seems like it's it's run rampant, and it's to me it's wildly disheartening because we don't need a group of people with a certain ideology to take the reins of power. We need people with morals and ethics to take the reins of power in my opinion and and you cannot be moral while you are playing a team sport you're not supposed to yeah i'll give conservatives some credit we we have reached out to people that are unlikely heroes yes. gosh russell brand was just touting socialism far and wide maybe just seven eight years ago obviously bill maher will smite donald trump early and often on his show <laughs> uh, you know john cleese is is no man of the right and we've embraced them because I think there are people on the right understand the stakes here, understand mm -hmm. that reaching across the aisle can be powerful. And then you have, you know, I mentioned J.K. Rowling. She was beloved by the left. But one statement mm -hmm. about the trans movement that was not outrageous and not cruel and not mean spirited, she was done. And I think that's really that's really a, a, a bad place to be with this sort of this, this fealty, this, you know, you, you cannot have any sins. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, that's a real problem for sure. So it's. Anytime we can reach across the aisle, it's one thing I've not done enough of on my podcast is I, I want to get people – actually, I actually did reach out to a liberal who I know well and said his, his bosses weren't too keen on that right now. So oh, really? I, I, so <laughs> I, I want to have more of those conversations. I want to see where we agree to disagree. I interviewed Judy Gould mm. a couple of years ago, and she's a really liberal stand-up comedian. But she wrote a book about free speech, and I agreed with most of it. And I, you know, she hates Trump more than anybody, but I don't care. You know, She's for free speech. That, that That's good enough for me. So – and, you know, people say, oh, you know, Bill Maher, why are you siding with him? He'll still vote for the left. I'm like, yeah, I get it. But he's also in real time every every Friday. And he's also sharing some really important things to an audience that's not going to hear it from anyone else. That is very powerful. Because if it you is, turn on yeah. MSNBC, it is a the clown show on steroids. But no one is being uh, – no one is giving uh, – hearing views that are challenging or or difficult or – 
or just uh, counterculture. And, you know, that's that's what we need right now. And, you know, so I, and I think one of the mm-hmm. perks of being conservative is that I can't help but be exposed to all the left's ideas. I see it on Facebook, on Twitter, right. in the mainstream news. So I'm, I hear it. I'm ready for it. I can counter it. I can debate it. My friends on the left, they are they are hopeless. I lost a, my best friend a couple of years ago because I was arguing about the that Governor Cuomo was not the best governor in the country and that the Russian collusion hoax was a hoax. He hung up at me. He said, I can't take this anymore. I haven't spoken to him since. I didn't hang wow. up with him. That's I didn't awesome. want to end that conversation. I didn't want to end that friendship, but he did because he disagreed with me. And I was right as rain on both, but that doesn't even matter. I could have been wrong. Right. right. He couldn't right. take it. He couldn't take it. Another a very, very dear friend of mine just mentioned to my wife that he had to unfollow me on Facebook. He couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> I'm pretty gentle on Facebook. And that I usually what I do is I share extreme examples of media bias because I want people to know what's going on with the culture. Mm. He couldn't even take that. Like, we're good friends. He couldn't handle it. He couldn't handle a slight opposing view. Not a good place for us. No, no, it's sad. And there's no nuance. There's no people wanting to see, you know, what the other person has to say. There's no uh, dialogue. You know, it's, you, you mentioned J.K. Rowling a couple of times, and I'm sure you've at least tangentially been or listened to or heard of the witch trials. And when that dropped, uh, I, I subscribed to Barry Weiss's, you know, um, Substack. And when that came through that channel to me, I was like, how is Barry the first person to talk to J.K. Rowling? <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, that is the biggest story out there is this controversial, loved figure, and nobody wants to touch her because they're doing what all those friends are doing on Facebook. They they can't talk to you. Mm -hmm. They can't be friends with you. They cannot give you an inch. And it's like, it's the most interesting story that's happened in the world of literature in, like, the decade, you know? And it's like, why is JK, the beloved author, so hated? And, you know, and all it takes is someone saying, you're a human being, I want to understand what it is you have to say. And we've lost that. It's a quick note. It's political, but it's in line with what you're saying. When Tara Reid came out a couple of years ago and and said that Biden had sexually assaulted her, listen, I don't know if she's speaking the truth or lying, but it was credible. It was interesting. And it it really mattered because the person was going to be running for presidency. And I remember, first of all, the media, the mainstream media ignored it for weeks. And I think it was the first person who had a sit-down interview with her was Megyn Kelly. Now, this is before Megyn Kelly had her own radio show, right. her podcast. Megyn Kelly is flying high right now. But she was between gigs, and basically she had a, a YouTube channel. She got first crack at Tara Reid because no one else would talk to her. Because if it was about Trump, there would be a thousand journalists lining up. But because it was about Biden, they, they ignored her. That's where our culture is. It's it's terrible. Mm-hmm. And again, I don't even know if she she could be full of malarkey. I have no idea. I do think she had some thoughts and she had some background to back it up. And it was a worthy story, and no one would touch it. And like the, like the J.K. Rowling, no one would touch her, even though it's an amazing story. That's where the culture is, and it seeps into everything we do. It it was so frustrating to me personally, honestly, because here at Carl Pulling, we trained dozens of owls. <laughs> trying to get that interview and it just <laughs> simply all for not it's a huge waste of money honestly and a huge <laughs> waste of owl blood too i mean those things careen so do you know how much it costs to train an owl um so yeah you're you're absolutely right um and and there is some light at the end of that tunnel because what what an opportunity we've had 
yes. uh, for people that are proponents of free speech to actually tell interesting stories that people that are possessed by their ideology by by definition can't tell right now. Mm. So, uh, okay, doomer turning to gloomer. There is some hope at the end of this tunnel, which is that the the counterculture, the cutting edge, the cool kids are playing the free speech game right now. Um, as they typically always have been because the the tyrannical force that tells you what you can and cannot say will always be square so that there has been some some amazing amazing stories told some amazing art created out of that like the witch trials like what is a woman um okay christian i know we're almost out of time i i I need I need you to turn from being nice guy Christian oh. into harsh film critic Christian for just a second. My favorite movie of all time is the newer Count of Monte Cristo with Guy Pierce and Ju- is it Justin Casvell Jesus? He played Jesus in The Passion of the Christ. His last name is impronounceable. Okay, there you go again. Uh, I, you're actually you're doing great. You're already correcting me. <laughs> yes, Jim, Jim Caviezel. Um, roast me. Why do I have bad taste? Do you are you oh, familiar with that film? No, I don't know if I ever saw it, but I, I'm not gonna. I don't really rail against anyone for their tastes. Oh um, man. I mean, I mean, I think. I mean, at the end of the day, listen. If you think The Simpsons is terrible, and you think that uh, Mac and Me is a, is a work of art, you know, maybe we'll have a conversation. But I. I <laughs> this, is the, this is the ultimate subjective art form, and I disagree madly with my fellow critics a lot, and I don't care unless they get uber political and they let that overshadow their reviews, which I think is not cool. But yeah, I mean, I think that's part of the fun is that we often, you know, my favorite movie is Raising Arizona. Is that the greatest movie of all time? Of course not. It's on, not in the top 1,000. It spoke to me. It means something to me. It's one thing I could watch a million times over and still laugh and smile. So, yeah, that's again, that's why I got into this game, because movies matter to us. We, we fight about them. We argue. We commiserate. We quote lines. These are all wonderful things. And I think when there's a cultural story there that matters, it's even better. My dad's favorite movie was Shane. It's a Western. Mm-hmm. And it's about being a man. It's about sacrifice. It's about honor. It, it's so many things wrapped up in one. And it's a wonderful film. It's not just a movie. I mean, for me. It's everything. I mean, it's it's my dad's favorite movie, so that means a world to me. I named my I was going to name my son Shane, but it's his middle name. My wife stepped in on the phone. <laughs> she flew a <laughs> down. But I mean, just that Bernie one. Bernie Shane. Right. Oh, no, <laughs> you know, so these things are important to us. You know, I I'll post a review of an older movie from the '80s or '90s, and I'll get lots of comments, and people go back and forth. It matters to us. It speaks to us. It's art. And it's pop culture and that's why that's why it's being weaponized against people on the right that's why it's being weaponized against free speech it's a sad sorry state but that's the way it is and that's why people on the right have to start creating art of their own and they're starting to mm-hmm. I think they're at a significant disadvantage to say the least but you know why are all the comedians not telling jokes about biden they know the power of a well-placed joke a, a, a narrative uh, something that that yes. sinks in takes hold and it can't be undone uh, you know, Sarah Palin with Tina Fey, you know, there was a great impression. She diminished her with it. And they, they recognize that. That's why they steer clear of Biden. You could tell a, a thousand jokes about Biden. His, his poll numbers would sink even lower than they are now. They can't risk that. They know the power of pop culture. It matters. And uh, it's 
part of what I do and part of what I cover. But it's you know it's it it's not just movies. It's it speaks to everything about us. Well, that's the best answer I could have gotten to that question because what <laughs> I know what you said, but what I heard is you have great taste. <laughs> um, so so uh, I'm flattered. Thank you so much. Well, Christian, we appreciate it so much. Thank you for coming and talk to, talking to us. Uh, I feel super lucky that we got to talk to you on such an important week for free speech and the film industry in general. And uh, we, we're just really grateful that you're able to stop by and share your thoughts with our audience anything you'd like to leave them with and also uh what where can they find you what are you working on uh what's next yeah i want to plug a movie i saw it last week it's called when the mob came it's about a canadian candidate whose uh, electoral chances went blew up in smoke when a cancel culture campaign raised up against her they took comments she made offline they made it um they took them out of context so it was not fair. And and her story is just flat out amazing. The the, the documentary you can, cut, you can find it on Vimeo.com is just a work of art. It's it says it speaks so much about where we are as a society. Yes, it's Canada, but it's, it applies equally to the United States. And to hear this woman who has studied totalitarian regimes, it's almost like the most eloquent voice against censorship, not censored. And this is her response. So it's amazing. Um, and also, mm. I just want to quickly plug my, my podcast, the Hollywood in Toto yes. podcast. She's actually going to be on the show very soon. Uh, I love speaking to canceled artists, people who are fighting back against the system. They deserve a voice. The least I could do is give it to them. Um, and I think we just, everyone's got to kind of fight, fight the fight in the ways they can. I don't knock on doors. I don't work in pol political campaigns. I cover pop culture, and I do it in a way that hopefully is effective so that we can all do something, whether it's you know contributing to a, a crowdfunding campaign or doing a, you know, a, a local political efforts, things like that. We all have our gifts. We can all use them to a certain degree. And being idle and enjoying the American dream right now is not enough. We can't stay down. Agreed. We've got to fight in the way we can. Yeah, we, we have got to reach critical mass of people that are willing to, to tell the truth and seek the truth so that they can tell it effectively. Christian, ladies and gentlemen, what an awesome opportunity to have him talk to us. We're going to have the links to his socials as well. We'll find that Vimeo link and put it in the show notes as well. And go go subscribe to his podcast, Hollywood and Toto. Uh, it's, it's a great listen. And he gets really cool, really interesting guests and perspectives on. So we couldn't recommend it enough. All right, gang, if you haven't, go like and subscribe to the show right now. If not, I know where you live, and I'm a conservative that lives in the South, so you know what that means. Is it a threat? <laughs> Legally, no. Um, but <laughs> but uh, You're bring baked goods? Also, Come on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Cookies. Exactly. Would be upsetting if anything happened to this pumpkin pie. Um, we're going to we're going to uh, be adding new merchandise to the store. Go to carlpulling.com slash store. Subscribe to us on every platform. Uh, you guys know what to do. You can follow the show at Carl Pulling on all of the social media. And remember, if you are on Twitter and you tweet something and all of a sudden the retweet button is grayed out and you can't you can't comment or like it you might be a clip from matt walsh's and justin folks immense documentary what is a woman and if that's the case you should certainly go get tested